When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Tennis Direct are Australia's favourite online tennis store with fast delivery and great prices. Free delivery on orders over $150. Just visit their website, tennisdirect.com.au, and you can get a 10% discount store-wide. Just use the promo code FIRSTSERVE10. That's FIRSTSERVE10. Welcome to Aussies Only, the first serve's deeper look inside the game at home. Talking to those inside and outside the tram lines. G'day and welcome to Aussies Only, your weekly podcast at the first serve, where we take the time to zone in on the Australian tennis landscape, all thanks to Latua Tennis. Head over to latuatennis.com to get your hands on the hottest tennis apparel in the game. They've just released a brand new collection including a hoodie, mask and t-shirt, so be sure to get your hands on their gear before it sells out. It's your host Jed Zetza and this week on the show we bring you a special edition where we chat to Mark Hilawadi. We dive deep into his life, his coaching career and his playing career. I'm going to hand it over to my co-host Jake Eames to introduce him. Eamesy, this is going to be a big edition of the show. Yeah, look, I'm really pumped for today's podcast. He's a great fella. He brings a lot of uniqueness and freshness to the court, which I think is awesome within tennis. And a really good playing career and a fantastic coaching career that's still ongoing right now. Welcome, Mark Hilawadi. Hey, guys. How you going? It sounds like I've died and there's my eulogy. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Far better than what I expected. Yeah, yeah, but I appreciate it. Yeah, it's kind of exciting times. It's uh, Right now, it's almost like a few days before the... uh, the next um, government announcement, and we're all uh, on tender hooks, wondering if we can finally get out on bloody court after so many months. So uh, there's a lot of tennis players and tennis coaches just itching to get out there. Absolutely, absolutely, Mark. How have you been able to keep sane during this period? Because it must be tough not being able to get out on the court and hit some balls. Yeah, there's definitely people in a worse situation that I was in. That's for sure, and uh, I'm grateful that. Uh, well, during this whole process, my fiance and I, well, I wasn't pregnant, but she was pregnant. And uh, only two weeks ago, uh, we had our first kid ever, um, apart from all our dogs. So our first human. And um, so that that whole process during lockdown, I guess, was just really per- personally and selfishly was just perfect time for me because I got to really help Sally out in a, in during that pregnancy time and, um, you know, and to do as much as I could around the house to make her comfortable. So it was a, a, you know, a silver lining to what was, you know, professionally a pretty bleak time because, you know, I started in this new role at Royal South Yarra Lawn Tennis Club in February and we've barely been out on court. So it's um, starting a new phase at the club and a new role as a head coach there. You want to go in all guns blazing, but uh, the pandemic hit and uh, 
it's stopped the professional side, but the personal side's been, um, you know, an absolute blessing and joy. And now we've got this little girl and uh, being able to be at home like this is time you just can't um, get back. So uh, that side of it is uh, I'm very, very lucky. Yeah, huge congratulations, Dan. It's fantastic to be able to take such a, you know, a special positive from, from everything that's going on. You know, I'm sure you're going to be a, a kick-ass dad. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, most of my dadding has been one hour or two hour sessions and then you hand the, the young child back to the parents. Uh, so, <laughs> so this one uh, is a little bit different where it's with you 24-7. But the first two weeks has been great um, and just getting our heads around it and, you know, listening to what uh, all parents say about, you know, how wonderful it is when you first lay eyes on your child. Yeah, I've got to back that up. It's ridiculous. You know, we were before all this happened, we were thinking, how can we lo- love anything more than our dog? And, um, and, you know, because we're just smitten with that thing and then uh, this baby comes along and, uh, yeah, 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 love and your feelings go to a next level, that's for sure. But um, Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely fantastic news there. You were born in Melbourne. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood and how you first got into tennis? Yeah, I was, um, well, both my, my parents are Italian, so uh, as a traditional Italian boy, I picked up the national sport of soccer. So I was playing soccer as a young kid, but um, this is way back in the day, and uh, that's only a winter sport, so I needed something for tennis. So my brother played a little bit, just hitting giggles, and uh, and Dad kind of convinced and said, listen, go down to the courts and, and have a hit and see what you think. And I went, I remember going down there kicking and screaming. I think I was probably about... 13 years of age at that stage and um and then loved it and then kind of got you know a little bit obsessed with it and the soccer took a back seat and started with the tennis and played as was the courts were probably a five to ten minute walk away from home so i'd walk down to um north croydon tennis club across the paddocks and uh and go smash as many balls i could after school almost every day so that was where it all started and it kind of I guess really accelerated and I I was d- wanting to do more and more but there was a whole bunch of kids that had been playing for a long time that were doing less and less so it was kind of in this um bit of a weird space but uh yeah kind of all started from there you know with the old wooden racket. Uh, we were on tour for about approximately 18 years career high ranking of 470 in singles 241 in doubles what was it like playing on the tour for you know a lengthy amount of time, and also you know playing on the tour back then compared to now? Any changes that you might have seen? Yeah, it's really it's an interesting thing. I had a uh, a fairly big um, hiatus for about twelve years. You know, I went away my first overseas trip, and uh, and I went away with. Um, uh, rest in peace, Andrew Florent was the, the first touring guy I went with over to the States. So, um, you know, I spent my first two and a half months, I think, um, abroad with him playing through the, the US, which was a real eye-opener because I had no idea. You know, you think you're, you're 17, 18 and you're the, the smartest guy going around, but I was, you know, an idiot and had no idea and just didn't know how to train or anything like that. I didn't really have that much of a professional upbringing in my, on the, the, the practice side of it really for a, a long time. And um, unfortunately, uh, once I got back from the States, we went up and played a, a satellite up in, in a Queensland satellite, which took me, I think it was to Rockhampton or Gladstone at the time. And um, 
you know, and being an idiot, I got defaulted in a doubles match while playing with Flurry, of all things. Um, and that's when I kind of stopped and ended up going to Perth and working in Perth and coaching in Perth for 12 years. But I still played, you know, all the, the state grade pennants there in Perth and stayed competitive. And um, and we had a challenger there, a $25,000 challenger every year pretty much in Perth. So I tended to play that and that kept my ATP ranking going with one tournament a year and um and i do pretty good it was on the grass so you get all these uh you know aussie guys and internationals coming to play who you know didn't really spend that much time in the grass but in perth we were blessed to have um the best grass courts going around the best weather so for me it was it suited my game to a t and then um at age 30 i'd separated from my wife at the time and um i and finished my my coaching business and uh, decided to go out and play again from age 30 and end up being, I think almost to 35 years of age. So I had my second coming and I was you know, the oldest rookie out there, but it was probably for me the best time at that stage to really see the difference in what life on the road was and how, how, prof- how the profession really, really changed. And um, the level kept on changing every year. And, you know, the, I distinctly remember the stuff, the shots that you used to slice to get back into play, guys were now getting out there and just crunching two-handed backhands, you know, whereas back in the day it was you'd get the guy on stretch and you guarantee a slice and it just wasn't like that anymore and the game really just went up a level. But for me it felt better going as a 30-year-old because I was thinking more with my head and not with other parts of my body as a younger guy might do. And, uh, and I was a lot more uh, dedicated and, and I got my best results when I was in that age bracket. And, um, you know, and I felt like I played my best tennis then just because of maturity and age. And I knew I was never going to make a living out of it at that age bracket and at the ranking base, but it was more to go see the world, um, play where I want to play, look for work opportunity, help guys out if needed. And, and, start a little bit more of that coaching um, aspect to my life on the road and, and seeing what best practices out there. So it's, um, yeah, it was the, the best thing I did. Something very unique about your career was that you actually, you were coaching at the same time as you were, as you were playing towards the end of it. How yeah. was that experience and how valuable was that time for you? Yeah, it's, it's really born out of necessity. You know, we all know that the prize money for Grand Slams and big tournaments have just gone through the roof. But that lower level, you know, a, you know, a $15,000 future is still only worth $15,000. And, you know, the winner gets, you know, maybe, a, you know, twelve dollars to $1,300 in the bank, you know, for that week. So the money is really skint down low at that, uh, that range. So there's a lot of guys who are, you know... Uh, you have to start there. You know, you've got to start at grade one when you go to school. So, um, you know, money's tight. And it was a way to, for me, to keep on playing and and also to help some guys out and, you know, take that role as, you know, a bit of a coach. And we share the loads and share the costs. And um, it was a bit born out of necessity, but it was great because, you know, what better um, time to learn when you're right there in the heat of battle and you're going through, you know, the emotional side of it, the physical, the tactical and all the other stuff like booking rooms and travel schedules and all that side of it. So there was a lot going on and, um, yeah, it felt like you're cramming in a lot of education in a short period of time. But, um, yeah, it's the best school is when you're out there. It's so much better, you know, to learn out on the road than just on a tennis court. And, you know, unfortunately some coaches can't get out to watch their kids play because, you know, as 
subcontractors, you know, time is money and, um, you know, but that's, I think you, you learn a lot from watching your kids play and how they handle situations and also how, you know, their parents and their peers, you know, handle situations as well. Yeah, it's an amazing journey there, being able to combine you know, coach and player it really must give you an advantage in both realms, actually, as a player and a coach. Can you, can you pinpoint any, you know, career highlight for you as a player? Yeah, I, I was really kind of, um, I guess when I first went back out there as an old fart um, in the 30s, I, you know, I remember my first bunch of tournaments, it was four four events in Queensland, followed by four, two in Melbourne, then two in South Australia. So I went four weeks on hardcore, two weeks on clay, and then two on the grass. And that was my first real foray back at it. And I knew I was going to be struggle street. And the first month away in Queensland, it was, you know, it was ugly. And I don't think I even got close to qualifying into a main car. I had, you know, bugger all ranking. So, you know, I did nothing there. And then in the Melbourne Futures, I think I made maybe won a final with, in doubles with Sadiq Kadir and maybe made another semi or something like that. So I started to get some matches under my belt, which was really good. And then when I hit the grass, I think it was in – they were in Berry and Barmer, and I think I might have – I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I may have won in Barmer the very last week. That's right. I, I beat another one, unfortunately, Todd Reed in the final there. Um and that was the last one of eight weeks. So to go from really feeling scratchy at the start to winning a future, you know, for me was, you know, it could have been a bloody ATP, tor- you know, big tournament, but it was only a $50 future. But it made a, a big, um, you know, it was a big turning, not a turning point, but a big moment to say, yep, you're on the right track doing what you want to do and, and just keep following it. And the funny part with that final it was at the end of that leg. So, you know, all the players, just as soon as you lose, as you know, Jake, you you lose, you get out of there as quickly as you can and you get home and come finals day, I had no one to warm up with. Um, I remember Richard Bromberg was coaching Todd Reed at the time and they were on the court beside me and they are warming up and I had no one. So I was just hitting serves as my as my warm-up for the final and from me actually offered to say, do you want me to hit some balls? And I said, listen, I'm, I'm fine. I've, I've probably done enough and I'll probably hit maybe, you know, 30 to 40 serves and that was it. So, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a little bit different in that sense. But that was probably a really good moment for me. But then I've had um, playing in Europe was really cool as well and just being able to go to places that you want to go to not necessarily for the tennis but just for the experience and meeting some coaches and you know they'll they'll say you know why don't you come over here and I went to Copenhagen for two weeks to help a guy out at his academy and he put me up in a little apartment in Copenhagen and you know for me that was a highlight because you can just fly by the seat of your pants and you know a good opportunity arose you took it. I didn't have any ties or anything like that. So um, there's some really good learnings by that and also some hard ones because, there's, you know, I remember in Holland I was down to less than double digits in my bank account and, you know, you've got to get by. If you don't get by, you know, the, the trip ends and, you you know, you've got to work on something else. So, um, mm. you know, funnily enough, you, you make a final of a tournament and you get a little bit more cash and then the, you get that momentum and the ball starts rolling again and, you know, and you start back on the horse and you start feeling excited. So, uh, yeah, being in those moments to really challenge yourself and to test yourself and work out, you know, uh, you know, what are you going to do in these awkward, challenging moments? Do you crumble or do you find something better and, you know, find a way to get through it? Yeah, those are some incredible experiences and definitely sounds like you made 
an awesome decision returning to the court to play in your 30s because those are, yeah, some invaluable experiences. Now, turning to your coaching, you were the national coach for the 14s Australian girls team in the World Junior Team Finals, and this team included Ash Barty. Can you tell us about that experience, and did you believe at that point in time that Ash could go on to achieve the success that she has today? Yeah, she was an absolute standout at that age group. She was clearly, these are the best um, under-14s in the world. Like, so you got to qualify, your country has to qualify for the for the event. So there's 16 countries that uh, that uh, make up the tournament. And she, by far and away, was the, the best player there. I remember she played the Russian girl. We drew the number one seed Russia in the first round in our pool and the girl had just won the um, European Clay Court Championships the week before, which is probably one of the premier Clay Court events for that age group under 14s. And uh, and she won it quite comfortably. And Ash had her first round. And even though we drew them, you know, she, our response as a team was, what better way to attack the Russians first match? Let's go get them. And she, Ash was all in on that. And she mm-hmm. loved that, that philosophy of, what better time to beat someone is right now. And um, and she tore that girl apart. I think it was 6-love, six 6-1 six or 6-1, six 6-2 six wow. or something. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Like on a clay court, tore up. And then even in the doubles, um, um, Ash and Leanne Hong, who went out and played um, at college in the US, um, just made a mockery of the Russian girls. And I remember that they were just pegging ball, every ball at that number one Russian girl and, the funniest thing was this Russian girl was trying to volley. Her body was lower than the net, so she was under the net and she was just holding her racket up, retreating. And Ash and Leanne were just hitting balls at her the whole time and it was hilarious to see. And and she just stood out um, the way she competed and the way she went about it. And also as a team member, she was, you know, she was such a good team member to the other girls and handled it, you know. And um, that at that tournament, one of the rules is because it's a premier, you know, age group event, there's a lot of agents who are looking for their next big big thing and their next big meal ticket, basically. And, <laughs> um, and they're all around the venue watching all the girls, all the players play. And there's, you know, some good players have played there. And, you know, they're not allowed to approach the, the, the player. They have to go through the team manager or the team coach, you know, to get some information and to pass on the information. And daily I was getting four or five, agents coming up to me asking for Ash's details and asking for the parents' details. Can I speak to them? And and you pass on the information. So she, she was definitely on the radar at that age group already. So, uh, you know, she, I wasn't the only one that thought she was a star. There's a lot of, uh, you know, quality agents who thought that this girl was something special. Yeah, gee, she's a good competitor. Obviously, seen a lot of her in the last few years, Um on the big stages, I've trained with her a little bit as well, and even in training, she's she's bloody competitive. Whatever you do, um, yeah. At that age, did you see? You know, like at the moment, in the women's game, she's tearing apart girls a lot with the slice and droppies, skipping round and ripping forehands. Did you see that at you know fourteen years of age as well? She had, um, yeah. She she could do anything at that age. Like mm. she loved playing that down tennis as a warm-up and, you know, you got to use multiple skills and racket faces and angles and stuff. And she was a, she was a queen of that. And um, to me at that age, she was like, 
she had a, a golf bag full of clubs and it was just up to her to work out which club she needed to use for that given time. She could have hit every club in the, in the bag and hit it unbelievably well, but it was about choosing the right club for that given moment in time. And I think she's over time she's done that and, um, you know, and, and she's under, really understood her game style and her game um, awareness. But at that young age, you know, she was probably potentially not pulling the right club out at the right time, you know, um, and was making a few mistakes like that. But she had, a you know, a bag of tricks that she could go into and she was, yeah, she was dinking and volleying and slicing and, you know, and the two-handed backhand lob, um, all day was on the but on the button. You know, she barely missed it. So uh, yeah, she had a, a vast array of skills that came really naturally as well. Yeah, it's just crazy how she's gone on to become such a successful player. Because often juniors who are really good at that age can can sometimes not go on to achieve that yeah. success. So it's it's amazing that she's been able to do that. Yeah. So and she's one of those ones that has has taken a break. And it seems like there's so many of these players that are doing that break, yep. having mm-hmm. that time out, you know, there's got to be something in that. Is it something that's happening too early in the in the high performance sector? Is it too much going on and or we're not evaluating the kids' mental health good enough at that early stage and aware of what they need to do? You know, is it, you know, is it too much everyone doing the same thing and, you know, these kids need different needs and, and, and emotionally are they coping? So, you know, maybe that's something as a high-performance environment we need to get better at. So, you know, having this forced hiatus is uh, is not required. Yeah, no, you're spot on there. And and I guess another player who took a break was Martina Hingis, but you were involved with her in the early stages of her career. Now, you were in her team when she won the Australian Open yeah. as a young teenager. That was yeah. just, you know, a staggering title. Can you tell us what it was like being involved in that team and more specifically what your role was? Yeah, it was like, it was, you talk about Ash having skills. Like Hingis, I think she won the French Open juniors at, am I thinking 12 or 13? I'll have to check on that. She won it at a ridiculous yeah. and that's you know that's unheard of to win the french and and historically the french open juniors has been almost the the ticket to making top 100 in the world mm. um you know as a junior if you win that tournament or you make a final you you're almost guaranteeing yourself a, a top 100 berth it, it was amazing that she was a kid you know she was the the year before she won the aussie open i did some work with her as well during the hotman cup and new south wales open um, or which before was the Adidas Open, and she was 14 at the time. And, you know, and I remember she was a 14-year-old kid in uh, this adult environment. Yeah, it was amazing. Like she was going horseback riding, rollerblading every day, horseback riding every second day <laughs> as part of what she was doing as a kid and then going out there and just carving up top 50, top 20 players in the world. And, you know, and my role for her was you know, a little bit of, I was more, I guess, not only just company, but I was a practice partner for her and organising the whole um, practice scheduling and booking courts and just doing all that stuff because I knew, I lived in Perth at the time and I knew the Hopman Cup inside out and um, and tried to make it comfortable and took her around town and showed her and her mum around town and, um, and just make her feel happy and to have someone to play with almost. And so the, a lot of the training was, you know, fairly light-hearted there was nothing really serious and she never really took that serious face on when she was practicing it was a lot of you know 
easy, fun stuff. But boy, you know, she could redirect the ball and absorb power at 14. It was ridiculous. And then the year after, um, when she was, I think she was 16, I think, or 15, almost 16, you know, they made the final of the Hopman Cup. I think she won the Adidas Internationals. I went to there and then the Aussie Open and, and she won the Aussie Open. And, you know, I remember talking to the manager and, you know, and he was talking about that that win at the Aussie Open was for her because of her contracts that she had, you know, was, you know, a $15 million victory. And, you know, I'm thinking this 15-year-old girl should be flipping burgers for $7.80, <laughs> you know, and she's doing that. And um, But she just took everything. It was just such a new environment for her and such a still a child kid environment. And that was basically I think part was my role and maybe why it worked okay was to keep things really light and keep things really easy for her you know her mum was pretty intense and her mum was all over you know that side of it and she knew the the scope and the importance of it but Martina was just such a kid as like deer in the headlights but um it was interesting the year after when she came back to try to defend that title, you know, I spoke to her and I said, you know, have you been out on the blades? Have you been out horse riding? And she goes, no, unfortunately, it's all tennis. It's all business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said that one year later and you could almost see the life being slowly sucked out of her that she wasn't able to do those things. So it, it changed quite rapidly. But, you know, for a young kid, you know, to, to be thrust in that um, environment was amazing that she was able to cope with it. You know, one side of it, she's got that, childlike element but then she's just had this maturity that was you know well well beyond her years it was yeah, it was really interesting to see it you know from close up yeah that would have been incredible to see especially the year after when she you know you you i guess noticeably witness those activities she was doing of, of kind of taking a back seat and it is more professional but you know she's only 16 i was obviously i knew she won that but i was um I was amazed to see that she was the fourth seed as well at that event. Yeah, I know that's the scary part. Like, so throughout the year, she's she'd won tournaments and competed and was at a high level. Like, you know, <laughs> it's amazing. She could have played juniors as well at that year. Yeah, inc- absolutely incredible. And it, you, you moved on as well to do some work with Serena and Venus. You were involved in yeah. those teams as well. Did you, you've, you've had some great exposure to, you know, some of the world's best players and even best ever, really. Um, yeah. what was it like working with the Williams sisters? Yeah, it was initially it was very intimidating, especially with Serena. And I guess for her, this is her normal life. She'd get a hitting partner for a week or two and then that'll stop and she'll move on to another tournament or another training block and she may get another hitting partner. So, you know, you, she's got her, she had her walls up initially at the start and um, which was totally understandable. And, you know, and, and for me that, that, whole journey started at the Hopman Cup where I got contracted to work with her for a time in Australia. I think it was about five to six weeks worth of um, of training and playing. And the, I remember the first week and a half, it was very much just she was on that side of the court and I was on here. And you just, you, you know, as you know, Jake, hitting with the girls as well. Mm. Like you look up to see what do they want? Am I doing it okay? Is <laughs> you just don't know. And they're getting a bit shitty and you're kind of go, oh God, here we go. I'm choking up a storm. I got to hit the ball in. But then as time went along and she understood and not understood, but she knew that I was there and, you know, I'd gone through that little, you know, softening up period that she started Mm -hmm. to open up and, and became a lot more 
there's a lot more dialogue and a lot more chat and um, and it become a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. And, you know, as we travelled and went to Melbourne to train, it made life much easier. And then, and then from then on, it was really welcoming and really open um, to see it. And it was just interesting to see the change of what training was like before the Aussie Open started and maybe two days before the tournament started. You just knew that the day she rocked up or you picked her up in the courtesy car, the mood had just changed. It was a lot mm. more serious. So it had gone from, you know, in the mornings, all the greeting and chatting, what's going on, and then it was like in the car, silent, and you go, yep, it's game time, and, you know, it's tournament time. So it was this flick of the switch and it was, you know, it was amazing to see that, you know, she could produce what she produced for long periods of time. But the other side is she's still so human, like she's still got super tight and, you know, she still got nervous and and was, you know, you know, needing a release of these emotions and the coping mechanisms and she just took it out in different ways and you know and you bear the brunt of it but you just you take it because it's it's not about um you know being super nice it's just a coping mechanism but um yeah. she was to see her come out of some matches and to win some matches you know with a lot of adversity and to back it up and the expectations and all the uh external pressures that go along with it yeah it's um yeah, she's a, a freak of uh, a, a freak of a human being, and you know, and the, really, the nice part is the human element off the court. You know, she's really open with my partner Sally, and really friendly, and you know, all inclusive, and still is today. So, um, yeah, I feel kind of pretty lucky to be in that little uh, that bubble of you know potentially one of the the best female athletes going. Yeah, and, and even when you compare those those couple of experiences we just spoke about, that's a huge contrast in, in game styles. You know, as a as a training partner and also as someone sitting there watching, I guess, matches unfold. Was was that a how, how was that experience, I guess, seeing two greats or three greats and, and completely different contrast between Hingis and you know Serena Williams, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's and you know, she was she was the you know the power the power beast at that you know at that era you know and mm. uh, and just crushing everyone and and then you know as we see now with the game changing um, with different spins and slices and and also athletically the women are just getting better and better every single I wouldn't even say every year I'd say every six months they just mm. keep getting better and the level just keeps changing and um, you know as a coach and all the coaches would look at you know the top players and they're still holes in their game and you know they could volley better or they could move better and all that. and we see all these things but what you know it's it's what they need you know and what what are their strengths and um you know and she's just built a game around her strength you know she probably in a day had one of the the best serves in the women's game um you know and and the best mentality in the women's game as well you know throw her on a big stage and you know she doesn't she doesn't hide she just steps up and wants that stage um so, yeah, it's a massive difference when you talk about Hingis, who was, uh, you know, she's going into a war with a water pistol, but Serena's going into war with a, you know, 20 cannons. So it's a yeah, very different way to, uh, to, beat your, uh, to beat the enemy. Yeah, it sounds very, very, yeah, just such an, another unique experience, I guess. And you've had a lot of them. You coached Zhu Lin to a bronze medal in both the singles and the doubles at the 2017 China Games. Now, that must yeah. have been... It must have been an incredible experience because that's a massive, massive competition in China, and it must have been incredibly satisfying for you to, you know, claim those medals and 
do you want to tell us a little bit about that partnership and that competition particularly? Yeah, China was a joke. It's so it's so weird and it's so bizarre and it's so difficult, but it's so good as well. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that time. It was tough personally in our relationship because you're away from home for a massive chunk of time and a massive commitment. But um, for those who don't know, the, the national games in China, your, your sporting career is defined by the Olympic Games, your national games, and then whatever else you do underneath that. So that, those two, the Olympics and the National Games and the China Games are the pinnacle of your career. And if you get a medal, especially a gold medal, you're set for life. You know, you get government jobs and, you know, the money um, that the, your province gets and the, the bosses get is ridiculous. And so that's the most important thing. And Grand Slams are, are secondary, you know, um, the national games take precedence. So, um, yeah, a lot of, and the big one of the national games is like the uh, Olympic games that happens every four years is the big one, the really important one. So they generally try to hire some, you know, some foreign coaches to help out players at that time um, leading into the national game. So I was lucky to, um, to meet Julian at uh, the Aussie open. She came to play qualies and the the coach said, listen, you know, help her out, spend time with her for a time in qualies, do whatever you can with her, see what you want, meet with her, see if she likes you and it gets on well, you know, we'll go from there. So um, I helped her out and uh, I think she, yeah, she qualied that year. So she made main draw, which was great for her. And, um, and then so she put an offer in and you couldn't say no. So I had a six-month stint before the national game started. So... All her tournament schedule was already organised by the province. So there's certain things they need to play. Um, you don't have any say in the scheduling. It's just all done. And you think the Olympics is, there's pressure on the Olympics. Come to the National Games in China. My God, it just, it's off the charts. You can't speak to other players from other provinces. You're in your little, you think, you know, the AFL have got the bubble that they're in now and they've got to stay in. The same thing happens here. You've got to stay within your team. You can't talk to anyone. And there's just so much intensity and pressure. And like Fed Cup and Davis Cup, you have your coach, your, your team coach out on court. Um, so you can get, you know, they can have their, and there's been moments where the bosses of the Feder of your province will pull the coach off the court and some boss whose administration would jump on and take the, the coach's spot. And the joking team. me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, no idea, but all this stuff happens. And they have meeting after meeting after meeting every night with the team and the players. And it's just, it's ridiculous. It's a really good experience to see it because it's the pressure of it's amazing. And so with all this pressure that goes on, you know, it was, we had six months of work to try to get her to where she, you know, where she could compete. And that was a bit of a change in game style and a bit of an education with her about, um, you know, what she wants, how she wants to play and how we want to train to play that way. And her English was pretty good, but limited, but pretty good. And her boyfriend, who was a hitting partner at the time, very, very broken English. So communication was a massive challenge and no one in administration of the province spoke a lick of English. So it was just her and me basically just talking to each other. So it was really difficult, but from a coaching side, it was great because, you know, you can't go the verbal diarrhea and talk, you know, waffle on. It was just mm. really poignant message, very basic, a lot of drawing on the iPad. You had my little tennis court and, you know, draw out the drills, what you want to do. So that side of it was all, you know, very um, finding different ways to get the message across. 
And then for her to to win a medal, which was the first time for tennis for her province, the Hamway province, which is not really a um, a, you know well funded province to win a medal was massive and. And, you know, you win that and she's into the semifinals of the tournament with the potential to win a gold medal, you know, and I was trying to pump her up for that semifinals match, but it was done. Like, she just won a medal. That was it. So, she, you know, the semifinal didn't matter. It was just get a medal yeah. and that was it. So, the, the massive celebrations with all the, the hierarchy and the family and her, it was really good to see and it was really um, pleasing to see this, this mean, you know, for her, it's the you know it's one rung below the Olympics, so it's mm. it's huge, and um, you know the that gave her some financial security for the next four years on you know being able to travel and play and and you know and compete, and then the province gets money and there's more funding for tennis, so it it builds, and um, yeah, it's it was really really satisfying on that side of it to uh, to start with the plan, and she committed to the plan. And then to be able to get the rewards was, you know, for her, just a real joy to see and, and how much it meant to her was, you know, was really, really touching. And, um, you know, I take my hat off to her because, you know, she employs this crazy Aussie guy, comes over, you know, and, and thrust in this small small town of 7 million and, you know, and, and make it happen and try to build a relationship to get a result, which is not easy to do. You know, as you know, it's not easy to uh, to get your players to perform and to trust you. And, um, you know, there was ups and downs and she had to just back herself. But, um, yeah, it was really good and I was super happy for it. And I'm super happy that she's continued on and, you know, she's cracked, you know, top 70 at one stage. So, you know, I couldn't be happier for her. Yeah, incredible experience. There wouldn't be many Aussie coaches who have even uh... – even experienced that and it sounds like there's so much adaptation flexibility required in your coaching style to, to deliver i guess put the results that she was after so yeah that, that's a phenomenal um experience that one you also did some work with sam stozer and that wasn't too long ago as well um, yeah my, my question there a little bit is how do you with players i guess who are already established you know come on board who have you know, their game's pretty much all set. They might need some reinvigoration in their career or, you know, make little changes. How do you step into roles like that? And, and what's the, I guess, the process you start with there? Yeah, it was an interesting one with Sam because, yeah, she's she's had a, a long, long career. And from a coach's perspective, I think it's really exciting that a player that's had a career that long and that successful and be number one and won a grand slam and is potent, you know, is coming to the end of her career, you know, in reality on the sink, potentially the single side, you know, and probably not had the success that she'd probably would want that she'd want to employ someone and still want to be challenged and seeking improvements in her game and, and seeking, you know, areas that she wants to get better at. And I, you know, i you know, take my hat off to any athlete that wants to do that at that end of their career, you know, you'd be, you know, okay for them to be able to, you know, put the feet up and just go through the motions a little bit. But um, she was very set and very clear in the areas that she wanted to work on and the little things that she felt she needed to do to keep up with where the game is now compared to where it was and what she's after. So it was relatively simple in that sense that she already had that, structure of what she wanted and uh, she you know she had a really good relationship with Maddie her fitness trainer and so he was working the physical side 
aligning that to her game style that she wanted to do and the way she wanted to play. And also, I guess, the off-court, you know, mentality and, you know, being a little bit more relaxed and trying not to put too much external pressure on herself. It was Maddie was really good at, at doing that as well and creating a really fun training environment. And I think she, she needed that at that end of her career to be able to go out there and play free and play loose a little bit. Unfortunately, everything that happened with was Miami, yeah, the Miami and oh, not Miami, Indian Wells, sorry, Indian Wells, and then followed up by Miami, and then uh, yeah, unfortunately, it didn't go longer, which was understandable. Um, but it was really good to see that you know, and she, you know, she beat Madison Keys at, at, at Miami, who was you know, I think ten in the world, so she still was able to show those things. Unfortunately, the next round she played Ash, and Ash. Yeah, Ash was just, you know, played a, a great match. And it was actually really good to see Ash play live like that and, um, you know, and how deceptively good she was and is. I think yeah, Ash, Ash won Miami that that tournament as well. So, uh, yeah, she lost to the winner, but she was able, still able to beat Madison Keys, um, you know, so she can still produce. Now, unfortunately, everything's the whole year went pear-shaped and, uh, and things didn't go as planned for her. But, um, yeah, it was... It, it was really good that an athlete takes ownership of their career at that latter stage that this is what I want to do. Let's get, let's try to get it done. Have you ever sort of left a partnership with a player and felt like maybe you didn't get the most out of that player when the partnership has ended? Uh, I think there's always, I think every coach is almost in that same situation as always, you know, and I guess at a pro level, it's probably a really awkward um, working environment because it's, and you see it a lot with a lot of the coaches. A lot of coaches go from player to player. It's the, the players that employ the coaches. So there's times that, you know, and I'm sure Jake will know this as well, you, you'd love to say some certain things to the player, but if they don't take it the right way and they crack it and all of a sudden that relationship, you know, is frayed a little bit, that coach can be on their backside within a week and they're out of a job. So there's an element where, you know, so there's some coaches that have to be a little bit more sensitive and a little bit softer with their approach to get to one, keep employed and keep a job, unfortunately. Mm. You know, so there's always a really tough one. But I think to start off with, you know, having that outlined initially with the player and the player really buying into it and saying, listen, you know, you may hear some messages from me as a coach that you may not like, you know, and you may not agree with it the right at the right given time, but if we both believe that this is the right direction you want to go to, we have to get through this period. And if we get through it and you accept it and embrace it and don't fight it, well, you're going to get better. If you stay the same and don't do anything different, well, what's, what's going to happen to your performance? What's going to happen to your ranking? You're going to, you're going to plateau. So the player really has to be the one that's got to go, I, I want to make a change. And if it's bad news or it's ugly news or things I don't want to hear and it puts, makes me uncomfortable, then... I've got to accept it because it's, it's going to make me better. And I think that's what Ash Barty has done really well and Craig Tizer and, the, and their team. You know, she she says, yep, she owns it. She goes, yeah, I've got to get better at this and I've got to do work at this. And if I lose, I lose. But I'm, I'm doing it because I want to get better, you know, so uh, it's going to happen. Yeah, you are right there. It is like stepping on eggshells sometimes, especially around <laughs> uh, tournaments when things intensify. But I 100% agree with you as well. When when athlete and coach, you're on board together. Uh, it's it's much more smoother sailing from from then on for sure. And it seems that those players that 
have that long-term relationship that, you know, you're going to go through those periods, but if you stick through it, you know, you're, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you don't, you don't go to a gym the first time you go to the gym and you're going to be unbelievable. You've got to go through that pain period before you get the results. And it's a similar thing with the tennis. You know, if you're being doing training a certain way and then you train something different, yep, it will feel different. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. It's probably, it's great. It's good for you. You know, it yeah, puts you realm so you know, sometimes even as juniors they see oh it's different or it doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's bad it just means exactly what you said it is different and it does feel you know and it and it feels uncomfortable and it, it's exactly that but persist with it and it won't feel comfortable it won't feel uncomfortable if you do it every single day for a month at the end of the month you'll feel like it's normal so yeah you've got to go through that period and um sometimes it's hard to put wise head on young shoulders 100% agree there. It's, it's been great to touch over some of your, I guess, career highlights as a coach. Can, can you pick any out or have you got any other extra highlights that you'd like to throw in there? It's bloody tough when you've, you've got a good list there. No, I, I, I tell you what, I get just as much joy as, you know, coaching now with people that come for, for hit and giggles and for recreation and, and for health. I get just as much buzz watching these players, you know, come to the court. And, I, you know, I've got a – at Royal South Yarra, I had a, a little kid, William, a little six-year-old kid that, you know, initially his first session with me is really shy, barely spoke. But then, you know, you have some fun within within that 45 minutes. And then the next week the kid runs out on court and interrupts this lesson that I'm having because he wants to get on the court. And, you know, and I get as much joy out of that and seeing that happen and then, you know, seeing the parent just enjoying that the kid wants to get out there. So, you know, at that young age, you're instilling that love of the game and, you know, the health benefits and the, the mental health benefits and the skill development, you know. And for me, that's just as enjoyable as, you know, sitting, you know, as we've done in the past, both of us, you know, sitting in the player box watching, you know, uh, you know, on centre court at Rod Laver. You know, it's totally different ends of the spectrum, but uh, the joy of it is is very, very similar. And, um, you know, and for a little kid to start learning how to serve and to make contact or do whatever, you know, is is a big win and um, just as much fun as, uh, as what you can get with uh, at pro level. So I think there's uh, a lot of coaches around Melbourne that are, are doing a bloody good job and, you know, and they may not be on sitting watching Rod Laver, matches at Rod Laver, but... Uh, they're probably doing a way more important job building the base of tennis players and, um, and you know, increasing the, the level of the kids and, and adults as well. Yeah, Mark, do you feel your playing experiences were pivotal for you in your coaching career? Do you feel that you could have had the same career at a coaching level without having played on the tour? I potentially would have been a little bit harder trying to coach pro players in that environment and understanding not only what happens on the tennis court, but also just understanding all the stuff that happens off the tennis court that will affect results when you get on the tennis court, either practice or matches, you know, the whole travel side of it, the scheduling side of it, you know, understanding, you know, if you're out on the road for two months, you can't expect to play at your absolute best for the entire two months. It's not going to happen. So if you have a bad week, it's okay. It's how you respond to those, those moments. So I think some of that stuff was beneficial being, living it and doing it um not to say that it has made a massive you know difference on success of those kind of plays but it just gives you some insight into it mm. like even now like i can't go telling a mum how to raise a child because i've never been in that environment you know you know i'm not mm. a mum 
and you know I haven't had you know to care for a baby for nine months you know in the womb so uh, you know it's living it is different to um, you know to seeing it from the outside world but those I guess those little aspects of has been helpful and just understanding the external pressures that come from it and the external pressures of the player that they put on themselves and their expectations and being able to manage that and also to look at big picture and and long-term view and allowing the player to have that kind of view instead of it just being right the here and the now I've got to win this match that's the most important thing and to be able to even out the highs and lows you know so when you win, you're not going too crazy. And when you lose, you're not going even crazier. And there's too many dips dips and troughs in that kind of emotional state. So that side of it, I think, was, you know, beneficial. And also, I guess, you know, all coaches, it's, you know, in all professions, you've got to keep upskilling. Um, and so seeing best practices, either whatever you can catch online, you know, with the French Open being on, you know, what better opportunity to see where the game's going you know, and upskilling yourself and seeing the different trends. So I think that side of it can be done not only, you know, being on the road with pro players, but you can, the beauty of the world now is we can upskill ourselves online a lot and chatting to coaches and, you know, being open to information. So I think, um, yeah, if you're not on the road, you can still get it. And it does help as the kids get a little bit better. And I think coaches, if we can get to, especially with our juniors, go see and play as many junior tournaments and jun- as many matches like that as, as you can is also beneficial because then that gives you some instant feedback on the stuff that you're working on. Is it translating to their match play? Is it the right thing to be doing? Do they need to be doing that right now? Or is there something else that I can really focus on which will get better bang for buck for that kid? So, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, at all levels, if you put yourself in that competitive environment, you will get some benefit out of it and, and hopefully your, your athlete will as well. Yeah, some great words there. And just touching on the juniors as we're, as we're wrapping up here, what piece of advice would you give to young aspiring players looking to take upon the journey and the task of becoming a professional tennis player? Yeah, it's a, it's a long journey. <laughs> Pack your bags and a lunch because it's going to take a long time. And, um, <laughs> and, and it's, easy to, well, it's easier to be a big fish in a small pond, be the, the small fish in a bloody big pond and, and experience it and to know that you're not always going to win. And for me, winning and losing is not really... Um, the benchmark if you're succeeding it's you know it's if you're improving like you can play the match of your life and still lose there's always going to be someone better than you and everyone's going to lose so you've got to just take that on board and I think also you know allowing that kid to fail and mess up and do things wrong and that's fine as well let them fail and it's not necessarily failure it's a learning it's an opportunity to learn and to get better and go okay well I won't do that again so you know I can minimize the harm so I think for the kids it's it's a really long journey um you know and to enjoy the highs and lows um I have one word I remember um uh well I can't remember the Spanish player now that used to do some work with Tennis Australia um we, I had him overseas on one of the trips and I remember him saying that uh, as these kids, these good kids who were playing international ITF junior level was, you must enjoy the suffering, <laughs> mm. and which is pretty harsh, harsh words to say, but um, unfortunately it is to a, a certain degree that uh, you've got to enjoy those really hard times because uh, once you get through those, there's a lot of, um, there can be a lot of good times, but um, there's no guarantee and 
the worst thing that comes out of your junior tennis life and your pro tennis life. If you've had great experiences and you come out of it a really good person that's worldly, educated, um, you know, it's got sympathy, empathy, and uh, and you're a good person, then uh, I think the coaches have done a pretty good job in that aspect. Mark, mate, it's been an absolute bloody pleasure to have you on from, from us and actually a lot of people I know that know you, massive fans of the flavour and experience uh, you bring to the court and Australia is really lucky to have you so passionately involved in the game. Thanks so much for joining us today. And no problems at all. And I thank you guys for spreading the word for, you know, for all the Aussies out there. And uh, I think what you guys are doing is really important to, um, to, to put some of these coaches and people and volunteers out in the, in the spectre and just show that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people that are really passionate about this sport and, uh, and the benefits of this sport. And um, yeah, and there's a lot of people doing really, really good work. And uh, yeah, I feel fortunate to spend the time with you guys and, uh, Loved it. And uh, let's get out on the bloody tennis court and start hitting some <laughs> Absolutely. <ball. laughs> Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. And congratulations on the newborn. It's just some amazing uh, times ahead for you. So enjoy it all. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. Ready for a hot shots, I think. Ready? Yes. <laughs> 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 <Yeah, laughs> um, well, that's all we've got for you on this week's edition of Aussies Only. Once again, be sure to head over to latuatennis.com before they sell out of their brand new collection. Eamsy, thank you for joining me. I look forward to next week's show. And thank you for tuning into this week's edition of Aussies Only. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to all our weekly content, including past editions of Aussies Only, as well as our dedicated commercial radio program each Monday on SEN that you may have missed at 7pm Eastern. Crunching the numbers and in the huddle produced by Study and Play USA. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.